Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med podcast where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. Now, I know all of you are stoked to hear another podcast on bronchiolitis, but I think this one is a little different and is worth taking a listen to. We're going to be looking at an article published in September of 2018 in Pediatrics titled Predicting Escalated Care in Infants with Bronchiolitis. And the reason that I wanted to get at this article was even though we talk about bronchiolitis a lot, all of us take care of it a ton. We still have pretty massive variations in care, institution to institution, and country to country. More importantly, being able to predict which infants are going to require some sort of escalated care and needs would be really important to be able to manage resources, get patients in the right place, and also tell parents what to be able to expect. And that is certainly something that we don't have a perfect handle on. So I've got the lead author of this paper on today to talk about the risk factors that they identified to hopefully predict infants that are going to or are likely to require some sort of escalated care and talk about the clinical score that came out of this work. Now, this paper comes out from a group called PERN, which stands for the Pediatric Emergency Research Networks. It's sort of a conglomeration of networks within each country of which things like PCARN are one of them. So it's probably the best data we're going to get anytime soon comes from multiple countries and from some really good researchers. Let's jump in. I promise this is going to be worthwhile. Hi, everyone. My name is Gabrielle Frère, and I'm a pediatric emergency physician working at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. I am a researcher as well, so my interest lies in both clinical practice and research. And my personal interests for research are centered around knowledge translation and implementation science. And so as part of that interest, I'm pursuing a master's in translational research at the University of Toronto. And this is part of the inspiration or the aspirations for doing this study on bronchiolitis, because I know there's a lot of practice variations around it. And so for me, that was a perfect target for looking at how can we reduce that practice variation. The article that we're talking about today is one that you were the lead author on, and it's about risk factors for escalation of care in bronchiolitis. So I'm wondering if you can just start out and tell me, why do we care? Why do we keep talking about bronchiolitis? And, and what was the impetus for doing the study in the first place? That's a really good question. So I think most of the people listening to this podcast will probably already know this, but bronchiolitis is a pretty common problem. Um, so in the emergency department, it's something that, especially during the winter months, we see on a sort of very regular basis. And it's a tricky problem because as benign as most of them are, it can have some really important consequences in that some of them will require intubation and very sort of significant interventions and infants can die from bronchiolitis. And I think part of the challenge as a clinician when you see these patients is that it's sometimes hard to know which ones are going to get worse and which ones are safe to send home. And so that was sort of the clinical impetus behind behind creating this research question whereby we wanted to find out what were the risk factors that would predict patients that would need more interventions or would need more support for their bronchiolitis. You know, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but something I find interesting is there, you know, I think there's a lot of regional variability and 
between physician variability in what they tolerate as far as going home versus admission. That's something we'll talk about, but I, I find fascinating, despite the fact that there's a ton of research out there on bronchiolitis, when you get any two physicians in a room to ask them what they do for an individual patient, it's really hard for us to agree. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And I think it's hard as well for families to know what to do with this because they get really worried about their infant who's not feeding, not breathing well. And so even from family to family, for a patient that has the exact same presentation, you might have a different approach because some families can or cannot cope with this. And so there's a lot of variability in that as well. I mean, until we get that straightened out, we're going to have to keep talking about it. So you guys are going to keep getting podcasts about it. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Um, So maybe give us an overview of the study as far as how it was structured. You know, what were your inclusion and exclusion criteria and how was bronchiolitis defined and where did the data come from? So that study, the study was actually a secondary analysis of a international initiative that wanted to gather more data to better understand bronchiolitis at sort of a, an international level. And so it's a retrospective cohort study, which um, is looking at data that was gathered over the course of a year all across the globe, um, across different networks. And it looked, it included patients that were less than 12 months old and had a first episode of bronchiolitis. And we decided to go under a year old because we found that the category between one and two year old is a little bit bit not as homogeneous in that some of these kids between one and two years old with wheezing will end up having asthma. And so we didn't want to have a biased sample. So we decided to only include the patients less than 12 months old. And we excluded patients with comorbid conditions like cardiac issues or respiratory issues or liver disease or any sort of other big comorbidities that might change their baseline risk because our goal is really to help clinicians in assessing the normal healthy kids that come in with bronchiolitis. Right. And, and to try to maybe remove some of the signal for kids who actually have asthma or have had a bunch of recurrent illnesses. And the underlying question is what's what's causing that? So I, I think it's important that that this was only first time bronchiolitis. Diagnosis. Exactly. Did you have a standard definition for bronchiolitis? Um We did, although it remains a little bit vague. So our definition for bronchiolitis was a viral respiratory syndrome along with having a respiratory distress. So retractions or um, tachypnea or another indication that there's more difficulty breathing. Following from that, and this is also hard, is, is how do you define severity in bronchiolitis? That's a really tricky part of studying bronchiolitis at the larger scale because different people will have different definitions. So sometimes it's hard to merge the data together in meta-analyses and things like that. So in the literature so far, people have used two different types of definitions for severe bronchiolitis, which is either hospital admission or ICU admissions. And as you might expect, these would be two very different populations. And we had some problems with both when designing the study because we thought that sometimes admission to hospital can be for factors that are not necessarily related to severity, like social factors, like where the patient live, like if they live six hours away from the hospital, you might not want to send them away. So we felt like that might bias or sample a little bit. And the problem with the ICU admissions is that, at least in North America, a lot of the time, high flow nasal cannula is not administered in the ICU. And for us, putting patients on high flow nasal cannula just didn't, was a, 
I don't know how to say it, denoted or was a sign for us that the the physician thought that the patient was a little bit more sick than just simply requiring oxygen. So we felt like these patients should probably be included in the severe bronchiolitis. Yeah, I think that makes I think that makes sense. High flow is an increased level of support. And, you know, there'll be lots of people that can argue about whether it makes a difference or not. But you tend you tend not to put it on patients who you think are your run of the mill bronchiolitis, even if your local institution does not mandate that those patients go to the ICU. So I, I agreed with that as a separate factor. So basically our severe bronchiolitis definition or our quote unquote escalated care definition for the for the paper was patients who received either high flow nasal cannula, non-invasive ventilation, so that would be either CPAP or BiPAP who were intubated. And we also included patients who were admitted to the ICU without any interventions because we wanted to be more inclusive than not and thought that these patients were also a little bit more sick than your typical bronchiolitis patient. Let's move into sort of the meat of the discussion then. And, and what did you actually find? What risk factors were associated with escalation of care? We found seven predictors that were predictive of severe bronchiolitis or escalated care in our sample. So oxygen saturation less than 90%, nasal flaring or grunting, retractions, reported or observed apnea, clinical signs of dehydration, age less than two months old, and reported poor feeding. So if you look at it like this, it's a pretty dry list of different factors. But if you apply this clinically, it's basically giving you a sense that patients who have respiratory distress, so nasal flaring or grunting or retractions, low saturations, signs of dehydration or reported poor feeding, meaning that they are clinically affected by their respiratory distress and can't feed anymore. All of these patients are at risk of having severe bronchiolitis. Two factors are are an age factor. So if you're younger, you're more likely to need respiratory support or need escalated care. So our cutoff in uh, our sample was at two months old, and that was based on the previous literature. But I think it's a bit artificial to separate it in terms of less than two months old or more than two months old, because it's probably on a spectrum. But for the purpose of the score, age less than two months old was one of them. The presence of apnea, either reported or observed, was for us a, a predictor of receiving escalated care. So I have a couple of clarifications uh, about your mm-hmm. data. One, you ended up including retractions, but not tachypnea or increased respiratory rate. Can you talk about that? Yes. So retractions and tachypnea were an example of the bivariable analysis that showed significance for each of them individually. But when we combined them in the regression model, they ended up being very collinear. So collinearity means that the two variables were really very related to each other. So if the tachypnea increased, the retractions also increased. And so including both of them in the model is a bit redundant. So in terms of choosing which one to include, we basically took, in this case, retractions, which had a slightly bigger odds ratio for uh, predicting escalated care, just assuming that that one was a, a bigger risk factor or a stronger risk factor for escalated care. And it included that one instead of including both of them. Yeah. So that's why you'll see that retractions is in the final model, but respiratory rate or tachypnea is not. You already mentioned that prematurity was one of those things that you thought might be significant that wasn't. Was there anything else? And I guess I'm specifically asking about duration of illness, because in my brain, that's an important thing that I always ask about. And I want to hear in presentations from the residents. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because 
because we do clinically rely a lot on the duration of illness. So in my mind, bronchiolitis is an, an illness that evolves over the first few days. And so from day one to day five, you'll definitely see a progression in the sort of difficulty breathing and the, in the uh, feeding issues and things like that. And so that's uh, why we looked to include it. In the previous literature, there are articles that have shown that duration of illness was associated with poorer outcomes, mostly if the patient presented with a severe presentation already within the first 24 hours of life, you could expect that they were going to get worse in the next few days. So Gabrielle, once you had these risk factors, you developed a score from them. Can you tell me about that? And, and how did you decide what criteria got what points? That's a great question. So part of the answer to that is that is the reason why we decided to do a score. Because initially when we ran the analyses, we had results which gave us odds ratios for the different risk factors. And we just felt like sometimes odds ratios are so hard to interpret clinically. And we felt like that was not going to be as relevant for clinicians as putting them into a score which they can use in their practice. Because I don't know about you, but when I see odds ratios, my patient is eight times more likely to require escalated care. Like, how does that translate clinically? Yeah. That was my big question when we started the paper and why we wanted to create a more useful tool. So that was the rationale behind it. And we simply took each of the risk factors and looked at their odds ratios and basically used the odds ratio as sort of the clinical score for that risk factor. So if you look at oxygen saturation, the odds ratio was almost nine. We felt like a score of 30 was a little bit too difficult to handle. So the only thing we did to the odds ratios was divided by two just so that the score would be out of 14 instead of out of 30. And we used, so basically we used a direct representation of the odds ratio to establish what the clinical value of that score would be. For anybody listening, I think this is presented really elegantly in the paper and is far easier to understand visually. So definitely take a look. Was there anything else that came out, you know, maybe interesting tidbits in the data or or things that weren't the primary outcome of the study, but that we should be aware of? We did a, an interesting analysis looking at the different networks. Just like we talked a little bit before, we were interested in seeing whether the rates of escalated care would be different between networks. And we did find a difference. It was interesting. So the low lowest network for receiving escalated care was the UK, having the lowest rate at 3.8%. And then this was much lower than what we see in Canada or in the US, where our rates were closer to sort of 15%. And to me, that was an interesting thing to notice. And we did do a secondary on the side analysis to see whether or not the patients were different between the networks. But when you adjusted for illness severity, the association persisted. So that was really interesting. Most of that effect was driven by the use of high-flow nasal cannula, more so than the non-invasive ventilation. And so our sort of interpretation of this was that there are differences in how people use high-flow nasal cannula, and we tend to use it more here in North America, in Canada and the US, than they do in the UK. But just which is more appropriate is impossible to tell so far right. with the data because high-flow nasal cannula is still pretty young as an intervention. So we don't know it very well and we don't understand its effect really well. So, but it was just an interesting thing to note and you could wonder whether or not 
maybe we're using a little too much here or they're not using it enough there is it's just an interesting interesting finding we had and that's not really discussed in the article so i thought that'd be an interesting thing to yeah i am um, about here I would not have guessed that. I assume that the population of patients are pretty similar between North America and and the UK. There's not like a rash of just UK bronchiolitic babies that are dying because they're not intervening enough. And and so if they're really escalating far less frequently than we are, it just it makes me wonder if we we need to reconsider what we're doing or at least look into it a little bit more. You know, the thing I I really like talking to the author of these papers because the thing that I really want to ask is you know, you spent a long time in this data and writing this paper. So, so what's your big takeaway? Or, you know, if you're talking to somebody about it, where does this sit within our clinical practice? And do you think there's anything that we should change about what we do based on this paper? So I'm hoping that this data and the way it was designed, like the reason why we created a clinical score was to to help people get a better sense of who was going to deteriorate and who wasn't. Because at the moment, there's a lot of practice variation. And I feel I feel like this comes from a general uncertainty regarding that fact, like whether or not they're going to get worse. And so if we can use this paper to have a more objective way to quantify the risk and then maybe base our clinical decision making on that risk, I think... I think that'd be a big first step. So I think it it can help with decision making for bronchiolitis. And I think the more people look at the score and give us feedback on whether or not it works or not, and hopefully if we can prospectively validate the score, I think it'll become more useful. But I think for now, it can be definitely a useful guide, just like you would use your McIsaac score for who, who to do a throat swab on or your PCARN rule for the the TBI. It's it's sort of a guiding principle, which still relies on your clinical decision-making. I absolutely love the way that you put that because I think sometimes people were, were physicians and we don't need to be told what to do. And these scores are very prescriptive is the response, but, but really they are a tool. They're, they're an extra decision point, particularly when there's a little bit of uncertainty at the, at the edges. All right, let's wrap that up. The predictive variables that ended up being included were age less than two, months, poor feeding, oxygen saturation less than 90, apnea, either observed or reported, nasal flaring or grunting, dehydration, and retractions. And I think all of those intuitively make sense. And the last thing I'll add, and this is something that Gabrielle talked about when we were in our pre-discussions, but I didn't get recorded with her, is the score can actually give you a percentage risk based on this data set of escalation of care in bronchiolitis. And I do think that having that objective number can aid in the decision-making process, particularly when you need another data point. The score has not yet been prospectively validated, but as Gabrielle said, they put this out into the world in hopes that it would get picked up and used and refined, and the author group would receive feedback on it. I'm going to link to the paper in the show notes, as well as list out some of the statistical methods that were used, some clarifications on them from Gabrielle, and some links to some additional resources. I want to thank Gabrielle for being here. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd. You can email me at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com or by going to the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. And I know every podcast asks this, but it really does help us out. Head on over to your favorite podcasting platform. Leave us a review. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. Thanks for listening today.